before the country of Israel uh, came to be, modern-day Israeli state, the following prayer was prayed every morning by every God-fearing Jew. The prayer went this way, May it be acceptable to thee, eternal God, our God, and the God of our fathers, that the sanctuary may be rebuilt speedily in our days, and our portion assigned us in thy law. There will we serve thee in reverence as of old in bygone days. Now, if you, I don't know if you caught that, but what was happening is that people every day were praying that the temples that they had in the New Testament times, the Old Testament time, would somehow be rebuilt so that they could go back into that place of worship. Now, you might wonder, why would they be praying that prayer so fervently? Well, very, um, for one reason, for example, Jews had no other place to sacrifice for their sins. They felt like they needed a specific place to have their sins atoned for. Now, if you've studied your Bible or any biblical history, you know that in the history of Judaism, there were two temples that had been erected where the Jews could come and offer their sacrifices. In the 10th century, Solomon, David's son, built the temple as he was directed by God. But we know that the Babylonians came and they destroyed that temple and hauled off the children of Israel in 586 B.C. But then Cyrus released the Jews to go back to their country and they sent a man by the name of Zerubbabel back to Jerusalem and he oversaw the erection of the second temple, a temple that was still being built in the days of Jesus but was finally destroyed in the year 70 A.D., about 35 years after Jesus died during the Jewish rebellion. But ever since that, ever since 70 A.D., so really for the last almost 2,000 years, the Jews have prayed that there would be this third temple that would be erected. And in fact, in the text right before us this evening, it speaks of a third temple that was built. It has been built. It is actually the church of God. Now, in the previous section of this scripture, Paul, we talked about this this last Sunday, but Paul has likened the, Christian, the Corinthian congregation to a building. He said that we, he's talking about Paul and Apollos, are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it, but each one of you should be careful now how he builds. Now, Paul brings these previous references to the church as a building into sharp focus in what I read to you tonight when he says, you are not just any building of God. You are the temple of God. And as Paul discusses the church as the temple, he said that the Corinthians are the temple of God. In fact, they are the sacred temple of God. Now, we're going to look at two of those things tonight, that it's the temple of God, but it's the sacred temple of God. Now, going back again to verse 16, Paul begins with a question that he knows should have an obvious yes answer. He says, don't you know? Don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? I mean, that's like me asking you, don't you know this is a Lenten service? Of course it is. Or if I ask my wife, don't you know I'm your husband? Of course she knows that. So what Paul is saying in our text is, you know without any doubt 
that you are the temple of God. But then he added, but you are not acting like the temple of God. And Paul went on to talk about what it means to be the temple of God and what it means to act like you are the temple of God. So we got this Corinthian church, the temple of God, and we know that this church is the church as a whole rather than individuals because Paul actually uses the plural you in Greek. Don't you know you are the temple of God? It's kind of like you'd say down here, don't y'all, don't, don't all y'all know. It's plural. Now, Paul is going to go on and he's going to make the point that each of us individually as well are the, are the temple of God. But here he makes the point that the church as a whole is God's temple. I'm going to leave chapter 6 and all the sexual immorality for another day. So don't get excited. I'm skipping over the, ex, I say the sex rated part of it for tonight. And I'm going to go back to the church as a whole. So what does it mean that the church is God's temple? Well, to understand it, we need to understand that the temple served two very important functions in the Old Testament. First of all, the temple was the place where God dwelt in a very special way. In fact, if you think back when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and they built that first tabernacle, you may remember that when they came out that God led them with a pillar of, uh, like a pillar of smoke during the day and by a pillar of fire at night. But when the tabernacle was built, it says that that fire came and rose over that tabernacle and descended into the Holy of Holies, where that Ark of the Covenant was. And so people knew that God was there. They could see him, that Shekinah, that glow, the presence of God. And God had promised that he would dwell with the Israelites in a very special way. And we know also that the Lord even chose to put his name in Jerusalem. He told David, I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there, and I have chosen David to rule my people. And we know that when Solomon built that temple, the presence of God came again in a very visible fashion and descended into that temple. So God dwelt in that temple that Solomon built in a very unique way. And because God dwelt in that temple in a very special way, the temple was a place where worship took place. If you reflect back on Christmas, you know, Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple. They worshiped there. They offered a sacrifice of praise at that temple. So the Old Testament temple served two important functions. It housed God, and it provided a place for his worship. Now, the New Testament church, that's the church you and I are in today, serve the same two important functions. The church is a place where God dwells. Now, I don't really mean that God is living here at night, that when you go home, he pulls out a fold away and sleeps the night. You know, we used to make a joke in my previous church that God, li God doesn't live in a box in La Fox. I mean, God does, not, it, God does not live in this place. This building is no more sacred than any other building you can find along Texas Boulevard. Although what we do here, hopefully, is more sacred than all of the other activities that take place in the other buildings along Texas Boulevard and the other streets. What I'm really saying is that God dwells in us as a group whenever we get together to worship him. Now, how can I prove that? Well, very simply, 
Matthew 18, 20 says, where two or three come together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. One, two, three. Okay, that's all we'd need. Actually, we wouldn't even need you, Amber, just you. One, two, three. Where two or three are gathered, God is right there in the midst of them. I don't know if you ever thought about that for a while. Here we are in this building on Texas Boulevard, and God is right here, right now, in the midst of us. I wonder if we thought about that more often, whether it would change how we conducted ourselves in church, or how we worshiped in this church. Makes you wonder. Jesus even said something else. He he said, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That's something Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And and I know this kind of points to the the end of the age where we're going to have some sort of a feast in heaven. But I'm also confident it has to do with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper here. Every time we have the Lord's Supper, what do we have here? We have the real presence. We have the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. See, the church is also a place where worship occurs. We gather together as a church, the temple of God, this evening for that purpose. We're really here to worship him who is already here. In Hebrews 2, it says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Kind of hard to make comparisons, but I was really struck by some things in Haiti a couple of weeks ago. A a church packed with people, and all of the children sat in the very front row. This can be disconcerting to an American pastor to know all of the kids are sitting down front. But there they were, starting with little three- and four-year-olds, and five- and six, and the sevens and eights, and the nines and ten, and back and back and back and back. All the kids were there. And I'm sitting there thinking, this service is going to last at least three hours. Because I know I'm supposed to preach at least one of them. But you know something? Those little kids never once moved in three hours. None of them got up and went to the toilet. None of them poked each other. None of them did, you're touching me, get away from me, move over. None of them was turning around or texting anyone or anything like that. And when they sang, I noticed every last person in that church sang. There were no grumpy old men. I dare you to make me. You know, there weren't any vacant spots like, I wonder how long this is going to last. It was interesting to me. I looked at that. I thought to myself, I could not, this sounds terrible, but I couldn't picture a single kid at First Lutheran who could do that. Or at Lord of Life, or at Trinity, or at Emmanuel, or any other church that I've ever been at. I just couldn't picture it. And when it came time to pray, it was really interesting. You know, here if we say, let us pray, what do you expect? You expect me to do it. When the pastor said there, let us pray, guess what? Every last one of those 300 people began to pray. Out loud, same time. 
I looked at these little kids in the front row. What really got me is a couple of little three or four-year-olds. They actually got out of their chairs. That's the only time they got out of their chairs. Got on their knees, bowed in their chair, and prayed. One little guy was bent over, and his hand was moving. He was praying to beat the band. I have no idea what he's praying. Maybe he's praying for a short sermon. Who knows? Now, I'd say that's kind of an, that's an unfair comparison. And I think you have to understand that sometimes people who live in places like Haiti or Africa... They don't have all the distractions we have that cause us to have our minds divided and our minds separated, where we have other things we could be doing, other things on our mind. For them, I, I, I stood there and I watched, and with many of these people singing with their eyes closed and just kind of swaying, it was almost as if that out of the terrible part of the world they were living in, they could shut the rest of the world aside for a while. It was if, as if they were just getting a brief glimpse of what heaven might be like, a little bit of heaven on earth. They gathered together to sing his praises. Now, in the King James Version, it says, instead of congregation, it says, I'm going to sing it in church. Well, the Greek word is ekklesia, the assembly, the congregation. Now, obviously, the major purpose of a temple is to house a deity. This is where God dwells when God's people is here. Therefore, the church also houses what? It houses the Holy Spirit. God no longer dwells in temples that are built by hands. Paul, when he was speaking to all those smart guys up on the Areopagus, said, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by hands. See, God once dwelt in the temple built by Solomon. He once lived in a temple built by Zerubbabel. But no more. He now dwells in his people. And this, of course, has a lot to say about chapter 6, which we're not going to get here to, to tonight. But he's saying, you know, folks, if your body, this flesh and blood, is where the Holy Spirit lives, maybe you ought to think about what you're putting in it. I sometimes picture somebody smoking and the Holy Spirit inside going, <laughs> don't know. We're careful about taking care of this temple as well. But not only is it the temple, he said it's the sacred temple. He says, and if anyone destroys God's temple, the place where God's people come together, where God is, where they worship him, it says God will destroy him. That's pretty in your face. The King James says a little bit different. He says, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy this could be part of the reason why Jesus got so ticked off one time. Remember that story in the Bible where Jesus showed up at the temple and he actually made a little whip and he chased people out of the church. They were money changers. There were people, they were just trespassing in the house of God. I mean, there were merchants extorting the poor. There were people selling animals. I mean, he said, you guys have made this place a den of thieves. I mean, you completely ignored that God is here. And he's here to be worshipped. Well, you might want to know how the Corinthian congregation actually defiled their church because Paul's pretty hard on these folks. But we know that there were divisions in their church. We talked about that a little bit last Sunday. We talked about unified or united wisdom. They were trying to decide which preacher they liked the best. You know, he said, some from Chloe's household have informed me there are quarrels among. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another one, I follow Cephas. And another one says, I follow Christ. Well, 
they were arguing about who they liked best. They also seemed to be pretty concerned about worldly wisdom. They thought worldly wisdom was more important than godly wisdom. And I know that to be true because Paul spends actually the first two chapters in 1 Corinthians telling them how much more important the wisdom that comes from God is than the wisdom that comes from the world. Let me ask this question, though. Are there times when we, I'm talking about you and me right here, this group of people, this worshiping body of Christ, are there times when we destroy the temple of God today? I thought about that. If I'm gossiping about other people instead of praying for them, am I not destroying the temple of God? If I'm absent from worship when I could be there and thus contribute to a smaller temple, am I not destroying the temple of God? If I refuse to submit to those, to the authority of those to whom God has entrusted the care of his temple, am I not destroying the temple of God? If I'm not active in the building up of the church, am I not involved in the tearing down of the church? There's probably a lot more I could come up with. Are you destroying the temple of God? Or are you actively involved in building it up? See, if someone destroys God's temple, God says, it's not pretty tough, I'm going to destroy that person. God will exact severe vengeance upon people who destroy his temple. We know that God does that at the end of the age. How that happens in this life, I don't know. But I'm not going to tempt God to find out. But in 2 Thessalonians it says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction. They'll be shut out of the presence of the Lord from the majesty of his power on that day. And why will God do that? I mean, some people say, oh, God's love. I mean, if God was really love, he wouldn't do that. And I say, well, you also remember, God is also fair. God is just. I mean, God can hardly love without being just at the same time. He does that because his temple is sacred. The word sacred means holy, which refers to something that's set apart for the service of God. In addition to the temple itself, when they built it, every last article that was in that temple in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, was declared to be holy. It was set apart for God's purpose. Have you ever thought about it? In the same way, this church, right here, First Lutheran Church, is holy. It is a holy place. It is a sacred place. And I mentioned earlier that this building is no more holy than any other building And I believe that's true. Yet in another sense, this building is sacred in that we have separated this building from other buildings because we here are God's little temples worshiping God in this temple. We as the temple of God are holy. For we are in the place where God dwells. When you were raised and you were taken over to somebody else's house, Were you ever given instructions on how to behave? Oh, I got them all the time. My grandparents, every time I left the house, would say to me, don't forget who you are. 
I always thought that was pretty silly. I knew who I was. Actually, I learned after a while what they meant. They didn't want me doing something in somebody else's house or somebody else's community that was going to reflect on the family name. I sometimes think about that in church. I sometimes feel bad when I've chased kids off of the altar area. You know, I don't want to be a crabby, cranky old dude. But then again, that's not a place to play. You know, when I see sometimes in churches, and I've seen it in a variety of churches where kids kind of, not even kids, sometimes adults kind of get up and walk across the chairs, like using the chairs to play in a game. Hmm, set apart for the worship of God. See, we're the temple of God because this is where God dwells. We're not like the Kiwanis Club. We're not like the Toastmasters Club. I mean, because God dwells among us and he dwells in this place. And God, or Paul reemphasizes the church's role as the temple of God by saying, and you too are the temple. You know, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, uh, something rather interesting happened in Israel. Several small organizations intent on actually rebuilding the temple in Israel got together. And they got some additional publicity when Israel's religious affairs ministry sponsored the first Conference on Temple Research. And one of the most zealous groups is called the Temple Institute, which has reconstructed 38 of the 103 ritual implements that were used to offer sacrifices. Their director, Zev Golan, says, Our task is to advance the cause of the temple and to prepare for its establishment, not just talk about it. No one can say how and no one wants to do it by force, but sooner or later... In a week, in a month, or in a century, it will be done. So they're planning on rebuilding that third temple sometime. There are actually two Talmudic schools near the Wailing Wall that are teaching students today the details of temple service. They're training new Levites. Other scholars are researching genealogies to identify members of the tribe of Levi. And one group of Jewish activists, the Temple Mount Faithful, have actually dedicated a three-ton cornerstone two kilometers from the temple site. Now, with all due respect to Jews who desire the establishment of that third temple, that temple's already been built. That temple is none other than the church. We've already got a cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone of the church. The question for all of us is, are you part of the temple? Are you part of the church? Several years ago, America was rocked by one of the deadliest shootings in history in our country. A young man by the name of Cho Seung Hyu, the senior at Virginia Tech University, you may remember, killed 33 Virginia Tech students killed himself, and he wounded 15 others. Leviu Lebreski, a Romanian Holocaust survivor, was teaching at the university. He stood in the doorway while students were exiting from the second-story windows, and he ended up losing his life so that other people could be saved. Now, it should be obvious that both men shared one thing in common. They were both insiders. I mean, one was a student at the university, 
The other one was a professor at that university. Unfortunately, that's where the similarity ended. The contrasts, however, are glaring. One was amazingly selfish. The other was amazingly unselfish. One hated his school. The other loved his school. One took lives. The other one saved lives. See, in the Church of Jesus, every member is kind of like one of those two people. We're either destroying the church or we're building the church. There is no middle ground. I mean, God says, long live the church. And he expects us to shout back, long live your church. Well, in closing, I want to just share five ways you can do it very quickly. If you were going to ask me, how could I make sure I was part of building up the church? I guess I'd start out by saying something like this. You know, having received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, having been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and being said, how I want to be a member of this church, I'm in agreement with its doctrinal statement, what it believes about the Bible and all of those things. Because of that, I commit myself to God and all of my other members in this temple in this church to do at least four things. One, I will protect the unity of my church. How am I going to do that? By acting in love towards the other members, by refusing to gossip about other members, by following the leaders. Second, I will share the responsibilities of my church. I'm going to pray for its growth, not only numerically, but spiritually as well, by inviting the unchurched to attend, and by warmly welcoming everybody who walks in these front doors. And third, I will serve the ministry of my church by discovering the gifts and talents that God has given me, and I will be equipped to use them within this body of believers, and I will develop a servant's heart. And finally, I will support the testimony of my church by attending faithfully by living a godly life and by giving regularly. Those are four pretty good things you could do. In fact, the thing I wrote down the bottom, the last thing, it says, that's body wisdom. And that's body building 101. And may God grant us to be body builders and to do it in a wise fashion. Well, our